when you know, when you know who is near, when you really understand and appreciate who is standing nearby, it can make all the difference in the world for you. Now let me illustrate this. This happened about 10 years ago. My granddaughter, Abby, was not quite two years old. She was sitting on the floor that day playing with her toys and lost in a world of make-believe. She had no idea I was watching. I was peeking around the corner of the hallway. And as she was sitting there that day playing with her dolls and stuffed animals, she seemed very happy, very secure. Everything seemed just fine until she looks up. And she begins to look around the room, and she notices that there's nobody else. There seems to be nobody else in the room with her. No mommy, no daddy, no Caleb, no nana, no papa. Where did everybody go? All of a sudden, this little girl feels like she's sitting in this big house all by herself. That's not good. The eyes begin to tear up. Her lip begins to quiver. A sense of panic begins to grip her heart. I mean, if something, this little girl at this particular moment is about to have a major meltdown, lots of crying, lots of screaming, but just before the fear takes over, just before her fear explodes like a volcano, all of a sudden, out of the corner of her eye, she spots her mother. There's her mom standing in the far corner of the room talking on the telephone. And as soon as little Abby sees her mom, the fear disappears. I mean, immediately, she just relaxes. She once again begins to focus upon her toys, and about 10 seconds after that, she is once again lost in a world of make-believe. And it's like nothing bad ever happened that day. Now, as I'm watching all this, I'm thinking to myself, how can this be? I mean, calm one second, the next moment you're ready to panic extreme, and then 10 seconds after that, you're once again perfectly content. How do you go from one extreme to the other so quickly? Because she knew who was in the room with her. And it's not just knowing that someone was nearby. No, it was knowing that somebody very, very special was standing nearby. And knowing that made all the difference in the world for my little granddaughter. Now, let's take that same truth and illustrate it a different way. When you know who is near, I mean, when you really understand and appreciate who it is that is standing nearby, it can make all the difference in the world for you. Let's take that from the world of a toddler, and let's bring that to the world of a teenager. Here's this young man. He's a junior in high school, and he is madly in love with this beautiful young lady. And he has heard his youth minister tell him many times that you can control your sexual desires. It's like a light switch. You have the power to turn it on. You have the power to turn it off. Well, the young man doesn't believe him. My youth minister just doesn't understand. He doesn't realize how powerful these feelings can be. Sure enough, one night, here's this young man sitting with his girlfriend. The two of them are sitting together on a couch in the young lady's house, and they think they are all alone. Well, in that moment, that young man feels the fire burning in his heart. I mean, in that setting, it's like his sexual desires just take over. At that moment, he just feels totally out of control. Wow, there's just no way I can say no to my feelings right now. I mean, the urges within me are just too strong, too powerful. And yet, Right there at that moment, when that young man is ready to cave into the temptation in the moment, all of a sudden the young lady's father comes walking into the room. The man who used to be an army ranger. And instantly, what happens to this young man's powerful desires? They get turned off like a light switch. I mean, in a split second, they are gone. And why? Because now somebody with great power and great authority has suddenly entered into the room. Now somebody very special is standing nearby. Do you see? When you know who is near, when you really understand and appreciate who it is that is standing nearby, 
it can make all the difference in the world for you. Now, I believe that's a lesson that's going to come out of the scripture we're going to look at today. Our text today comes out of the book of, of 1 Samuel. And then in this book, God is raising, he's in the process of raising up a new leader for the nation of Israel. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, we see God working with this young man, preparing and, and, and training and equipping him, equipping him to become a prophet, priest, and a judge, all at the same time. I mean, never before have we seen these three roles combined in one person's life. But we're about to see this now in the, in the life of this young man, Samuel. Through the life of Samuel, God intends to do some really special things uh, for his people. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 are all about Samuel's growth and development. How through the life of his godly mother, Hannah, and then later on through the life of an elderly man named Eli, God is going to prepare Samuel to lead the nation of Israel. But then you come to chapters 4, 5, and 6 of the book, and a shift takes place. Samuel just disappears from the picture. I mean, for three chapters, we don't hear anything about him at all. Why? Well, for three chapters, God wants to show us why we need this kind of a leader, why the nation of Israel needs somebody like Samuel. For three chapters, we see one example after another of the unfaithfulness of the Israelites. They're just getting way off track in their relationship with God. We just read one story after another how God's people keep getting it wrong. And every one of those stories is centered around a little box that the Bible refers to as the Ark of the Covenant. Thirty-five times in chapters 4, 5, and 6 we read about the Ark of the Covenant. Now what in the world is that? Well, the Ark of the Covenant, is, it's a special box. It's four feet long, two feet wide and two feet high, and it's covered in pure gold. And sitting on the top of the box are these two cherubim, these two angelic-like creatures, and they are looking down on the lid. Because the lid to this box, the lid to the Ark of the Covenant is something special. The Bible refers to it as the mercy seat. That's the place where once a year the, the high priest, once a year he steps into the Holy of Holies, and then he, he sprinkles blood from the sacrifice that has been made. He sprinkles blood on the lid. Here's the annual reminder of how God in his mercy, in his great mercy, he has prepared a way for all of our sins to be forgiven so that now once again we can draw near to him and he can draw near to us. So you have these two cherubim sitting on top of this golden box, and they're looking down on the lid. And each of the cherubim, they have their wings spread out like they're trying to guard what lies inside the box. What lies inside the Ark of the Covenant? Well, there's something really special here. There's two tablets of stone. Both tablets have something written on it, written by the very finger of God. Each tablet has the same set of words written on it. One tablet is God's copy. The other, ta other tablet is the copy that belongs to the people of Israel. And written on both of those tablets are what the Bible calls the Ten Words. We, we call them the ten, the ten Commandments. But the Bible calls them the Ten Words. Here are the Ten Words that define the relationship between God and His people. Here are the ten words that remind them of the covenant they formed at Mount Sinai, where I will be your God, you will be my people. That's one of the reasons why we call this box, this golden box, the Ark of the Covenant. The terms of the covenant are lying there within. Here are the ten words that show how God and His people can enjoy this relationship with each other and how they can keep this relationship healthy and strong. So when you begin to realize all that the Ark of the Covenant represents, you begin to realize this is something special. Here is a physical reminder that God wants to be close to us. God wants to dwell in our midst. Here is this visible reminder that God is always standing nearby. And he's standing here because he's eager to help. He's eager to make a difference for us. But for Samuel chapters 4, 5, and 6, God's people have lost sight of this truth. 
They have forgotten what it means to have God close by. And they have forgotten this because they've lost their sense of respect for the Lord. Now think about this. The word respect literally means to take a second look. You know, you've been taking things for granted, treating things too lightly, not taking anything seriously. When all of a sudden, something dramatic, something heart-bounding happens, something that forces you to take a second look. And the second time you look, now you see everything with a much greater sense of appreciation. You know, you're in a baseball game and you're crowding the plate because you have no respect at all for the pitcher. Oh, this guy has nothing. And then he throws this 99-mile-an-hour fastball right past your chin. Well, as you pick yourself up off the ground, you think, whoa, that pitcher deserves a second look. So this time, as you step into the batter's box, you stay a little bit further away from the plate. And now you focus on that pitcher with a much greater sense of concentration because now you have a whole new level of respect for the guy who is standing on the mound. Well, that's the kind of respect here in 1 Samuel chapter 5 that God is going to try to develop in both the Philistines and the Israelites. Don't take God lightly. Because when you really begin to understand and appreciate who God is, the one who is standing nearby, when you have a proper sense of respect for him, wow, it will make all the difference in the world for you. Watch how this happens. 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1, it says, After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, they took it from Ebenezer, a place in Israel, and they bring it to Ashdod, to one of their cities. Now, what we're reading here should never have happened. But the problem's not with the Philistines. The problem's with the Israelites. The Israelites have lost the Ark of the Covenant because they have lost their respect for God. And the details are given to us back in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible tells us the Israelites went out to fight the Philistines. And that day they lost big time, heavy casualties. And God's people are stunned. I mean, they're just confused. How, how could this happen? Are we not God's chosen people? Yes, we are. Did not God promise this land to us? Yes, he did. Then why did he allow us to be defeated and to be defeated by our idol-worshiping neighbors? Well, God allowed the defeat as a wake-up call because the Israelites are not, being, they're not living right. They're not being faithful in their covenant with the Lord. But rather than searching their hearts and confessing their sins and realizing, yeah, God, you're right, the problem is with us. No, the Israelites think the problem's with God. Hey, you didn't keep up your end of the bargain. You weren't being faithful in your commitment to us. So a second time, 1 Samuel chapter 4, a second time the Israelites decide to go out and fight the Philistines. And this time they decide, we're going to twist God's arm. We're going to force God to act on our behalf. We're going to practice a little blackmail. Spiritually speaking, we're going to hold a gun to his head, and we're going to make God fight for us. How? Well, this time when they go out to battle, they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it out of the tabernacle where it's supposed to be, and they bring it out to the battlefield where it's not supposed to be. Why? Because they're thinking, hey, if we lose this day, it's not just the Israelites are losing. This time it's God's losing, and God doesn't want to lose face. He doesn't want to look bad in the eyes of people. So by putting the Ark of the Covenant out here, it's not just our honor that is at stake. Now it's God's honor at stake. I mean, his name, his reputation is on the line. So by putting the Ark of the Covenant out here, we're putting the pressure on the Lord. You've got to perform. You've got to come through. Do you see what's wrong with that thing? I mean, this is really bad theology. Do you see this lack of respect? By bringing out the Ark of the Covenant, they're not seeking to honor God. No, they're just trying to control, manipulate him. They're trying to use him for their own special or selfish plans. Now God is no longer God in their lives. Now God's become their rabbit's foot, their good luck charm, a piece of magic that they pull out on special occasions to make sure something good happens for them. 
Do we do the same thing? Are we guilty of treating God that way? Isn't it true that sometimes we treat God like the waiter in a restaurant? You know, you come to this special place to enjoy the company of your friends, and you sit around the table that night, and you enjoy this great meal, and you spend hours just sitting there talking and telling stories. And yet for hours, as you're sitting there at the table, you ignore the waiter. I mean, the only time you call him over is when you need something. Can we have dessert now? Uh, Can we have some more water? Can we have the bill? But the waiter doesn't sit at the table with you. He's not a part of your evening. You only call on him when you want something. But other than that, he's not a part of this moment, this special moment that you're enjoying with your friends. Do we treat God that way? For most of the day, he's really not a part of our lives. Oh, we only think to pray when a problem pops up. But other than that, we really don't take him seriously. I mean, he never really sits at the table with us. He's not a a part of most of our conversations. He's not a part of many of the decisions we make. He's not a part of many of the relationships and activities we enjoy. The only time we think to call him is when some kind of emergency arises. Yeah, we come to church on Sunday morning, and every once in a while we'll read our Bibles, and from time to time we'll put something in the offering. But many times the reason why we're doing that is because we just want to make sure we're doing our bit, our part, because if we do our bit, our part, now we feel like God's obligated to us. Hey, I did my part. you got to do your part. Keep me out of hell, answer my prayers from time to time, and keep my life comfortable and happy. Do you see the problem here? The problem with this kind of thinking? We're acting like God is here for us instead of realizing we are here for him. We've forgotten what the Bible teaches, that we are made in the image of God. It's not that we are here to make God in our image. So that's exactly what's happened with the Israelites, 1 Samuel chapter 4. So twice, as a wake-up call to try to restore a proper sense of respect for God, twice God allows them to be defeated on the battlefield. First time, 4,000 soldiers die. The second time, 30,000 soldiers die. And the second time, God allows the Ark of the Covenant to be taken away, to be captured by the enemy. But understand, God is at work in this moment. And 1 Samuel chapter 5, God is about to show both the Philistines and the Israelites he's not helpless. The world doesn't revolve around us. The world revolves around him. Watch. Verse 2. Then they, the Philistines, they carried the ark, the ark of the covenant, and brought it into Dagon's temple. That's one of the primary gods they worship. And they set the ark of the covenant right beside Dagon. It's like they're putting a trophy in their trophy case. Here's the proof we won. And we won because our god, Dagon, is bigger and greater than Israel's god. Well, the Philistines are about to learn there are not many gods in this universe. There's only one. There's only one true God, and that one true God deserves our utmost respect. So watch what happens. Verse 3. When the people of Ashdod, the Philistines, they rose early the next morning. They're they're up. They're eager to get to the temple. They want to worship and praise Dagon because he brought us this victory. But they get to the temple, and they're shocked. There was Dagon fallen on his face. Now get that. It's not just he fell next to the Ark of the Covenant. No, he's fallen on his face in a position of worship. He's now lying there in a position of submission and respect. Submitting to whom? He's on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Well, the Philistines are thinking, is this some kind of fluke or accident? I mean, was there an earthquake in the middle of the night we just didn't notice? So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. In other words, Dagon can't lift himself up. I mean, shouldn't you be thinking, "Uh, I think there's something wrong here. This God who's supposed to be God can't act like a God. We have to pick him up and put him back in his place. God of Israel doesn't need that kind of help. He can fend for himself. And so to show everybody this is no accident, watch what happens on the next day. Verse 4. But the following morning, 
when they arose, they come to the temple to once again praise and worship Dagon. And once again, there he is, fallen on his face. Fallen in a specific way. Fallen in a position of worship. Fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Only this time, his head and his hands have been broken off. Now, the NIV says broken off. In the Hebrew, it literally means cut off, chopped off. In other words, it wasn't a case where the, this time the idol fell over and then just kind of broke and fell apart. No, the head and hands intentionally cut off. This word is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about a military execution. Hey, you don't have to worry about the enemy anymore. Why? You hear the head and hands. I mean, they're not going to be around to bother you anymore. Just like twice in 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, the Israelites were defeated in battle. Now twice in chapter 5, God humiliates and defeats the God of the Philistines. Is there any doubt about who is God here? You see, here is God at work on the mission field. Here is God making himself known to a pagan people. Here is God making it clear that when he's standing near, you better not take his presence for granted. So what do we learn from this? Let me uh, finish this way. Let's make a comparison. If you were to go back to the beginning of the Bible, what do you find? You find Adam and Eve, and they're living in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Here's the perfect man, perfect woman, living in a perfect environment. And then one day, somebody comes into this paradise that shouldn't be there. Somebody comes in who doesn't belong. Somebody who comes in and spoils everything. The devil. Now listen, God had made it clear to both Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. He says, you are to work the garden and you are to keep it. And that second phrase, keep it, literally means guard it. Meaning, there are some things that fit in this environment and there are some things that don't. And one of the things that doesn't belong, Satan. You don't want to keep company with him. You don't want to have him standing nearby. That's why all the way through the pages of the Bible, the Bible keeps telling us, resist the devil. Fight him. Close the door. Don't let him in. Tell him he's not welcome here. You don't want that influence in your life. Well, Adam and Eve not only allow Satan into the garden, then they make their second foolish mistake. They act like, well, we can just handle this all by ourselves. We really don't need to call on the Lord. I mean, after all, we're pretty smart and bright and clever, and they were. But they are not nearly as bright and clever as Satan. The Bible makes it clear, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, that Satan is the most clever of all the creatures in this universe. Now get that. He's not in the same category as God. Only God creates. So Satan's not even in his league. But on the other category with the rest of us, Satan is the most clever of all. Which means... When you're at your very best, like Adam and Eve, perfect man, perfect woman, living in a perfect world, even when you're at your very best, you are no match for Satan. And here's the proof, Genesis chapter 3. When you're not leaning on the Lord, when you don't have him standing nearby and Satan comes your way, you're in trouble. You will be taken in. You will be deceived. You, you will be destroyed. And sure enough, Genesis chapter 3, Satan's allowed into the garden and paradise is ruined. Why? Because Adam and Eve did not have the right person standing nearby. Now take that, what you read and learn in Genesis chapter 3, and now compare that to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we're once again in a garden. Only this time it's the garden of Gethsemane. And on this night, Jesus is standing in the garden. It's the night before the cross. And even though Satan's getting ready to pull out all the stop and use every one of his weapons to try to bring Jesus down, he is no match for the Lord. He is powerless in the presence of Christ. So here is Jesus standing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And why is he standing there? He's there to guard and protect. He's there to take care of his disciples. Now think about this. The disciples at that moment, they're, they're weak, they're tired, and they're so naive. I mean, they spent most of this night sleeping instead of praying. 
they are totally unprepared for what is about to occur. They're, uh, what is about to occur. They're not ready for this moment at all. They're confused. They're disoriented. Never have they been so vulnerable. Never have they been so fragile. And yet at that moment, they are safe, perfectly safe. Their destiny secure. Why? Because Jesus is standing in the garden with them. Do you see? When you know who is near, when you really understand and appreciate who it is that is standing nearby, that this isn't just anyone. This is someone really special. This is the most special person in all the universe. When you know that Jesus is standing nearby, wow, it will make all the difference in the world for you. Let's pray. God, make your name holy to us. Would you fill our hearts today with awe and reverence and respect for you? God, open the eyes of our heart and help us to see that you are God and you are God alone. And there is no one else like you. And God, I pray that you would be God alone in every one of our lives. And I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're getting ready for a time of communion. So here's an opportunity for us to take a second look, to begin to see with a much greater sense of appreciation just who is God. And do you appreciate what he's done for us? Do you realize that there's no one else who could have provided us with this kind of blessing? You see, with the bread and the juice, we have this physical reminder of the God who wants to draw near to us. But here's the question. This morning, will we open our hearts and with a deep sense of gratitude and respect, will we draw near to him? Let's pray. God, we want to honor you. We want to praise and worship you. We want to thank you for Jesus and thank you for the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. God, thank you for this precious gift of salvation. And we thank you in Jesus' name.